Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. This Thanksgiving week, we're digging into the Metro Connection archives to bring you some of our favorite stories about food, family, and traditions. I've never known to have so many different styles of greens, but if you come to Mirror's Kitchen, you will be introduced to every style of green you can think of. We'll meet the chef who spent years feeding the homeless delicious, fresh-cooked meals. And we'll talk with a young farmer whose family has been working the land in Howard County, Maryland since 1797. We work a lot of hours, and it's physically and emotionally demanding, but all of those things make it fun, too. But first, remember the cronut, the croissant donut concoction that had bakery customers lining up around the block for hours? Well, the cronut has been dethroned, or so says Bon Appetit magazine editor Adam Rappaport. Here he is talking with Matt Lauer on the Today Show. All right, great. We had a cronut craze in yes. 2014. What's that, the version of that in 2015? What, this is a regional specialty in Texas. It's a kolache, and, and it's a Czech donut that immigrants brought over years ago. In the- immigrants like the forebears of D.C. resident Chris Spetlick, who grew up in central Texas, baking kolaches from his Czech grandmother's recipe. You know, suddenly you see the editor of Bon Appetit magazine on the Today Show proclaiming kolache as the next cronut. And we don't fully know about that, but it is exciting that this food that we know and love potentially reaching broader audiences here. Chris Svetlick and fellow Texas transplant Brian Stanford recently launched their own kolache bakery here in the district at Mess Hall, a shared kitchen space for emerging food companies. The guys are among a tiny handful of kolache makers in the region, all Texas expats, and they're calling their business Republic Kolache Company. It's a nice nod to where we are now and where we came from. In other words, Chris says their present home, D.C. The seat of our republic. Their native home, Texas. Texas was once the Republic of Texas. And the original home of the Kalachi. The Czech Republic. Though, if we're actually speaking Czech, I should say Kolach. Technically, Kalache is plural. Kolach is singular. Traditionally, Czech Kolache are round pillows of semi-sweet yeast dough puffing up around a dollop of fruit filling, something like apricot or prune. But, says Chris Svetlick, after a wave of Czech immigration hit Texas at the turn of the 20th century. They basically reached a more mainstream audience, became less Czech. And as a result, kolach became... Kolachi, um, and kolachis would be the uh, plural. So everyone just calls them kolachis. They also went from being a traditional wedding dessert to more of a casual roadside snack. There are a couple of these very iconic kolachi bakeries that all in this very weird, very Texan way are attached to like giant gas station convenience stores. Yeah, they're not, uh, they're not really delicate in Texas. Another step in the kolach kolachi evolution, the shape. A few days before meeting Chris and Brian, I visit the kitchen of DC's Blue Duck Tavern, where pastry chef and former Texan Naomi Gallego explains why Czech kolache are around. The origin of the word is kola, which is an old Slavic word, which means circle or ring. But in the Lone Star State? They start with rounds and they bake them in a sheet. So they end up all baking together and they're kind of square. They pull off in squares. Not Naomi though. I really like keeping with the tradition of keeping things in a circle. So at Blue Duck Tavern, where she just added strawberry rhubarb kolaches to the brunch menu, she uses a silicone muffin pan to maintain their round shape. At Republic Kolachi Company, on the other hand, they go full-on Texas and bake their kolaches side-by-side, so they come out more square. They also embrace the Lone Star tradition of adding savory flavors to the mix. In fact... All right, so we've pulled a 
sheet of dough balls that have been risen two times out of the fridge. They're now unwrapping them. It's this kind of savory kolache that Chris and Brian are making today, using a mini ice cream scoop. I was trying to give you good sound design there. It's like that was good. Some really emphatic <laughs> scoops. They're stuffing half their dough balls with chorizo, chipotle cheddar, and bacon, and half with half-smoked sausage, sharp cheddar, and fried jalapenos. Brian Stanford explains the origins of the second one, what they're calling the L.B. Johnson. Texas, you get uh, a lot of uh, smoked beef sausage with cheese and sometimes jalapenos thrown in there. And what we wanted to do is a D.C. spin on that, and so we decided to substitute beef smoked sausage for uh, half-smokes. Now, they do also offer fruit kolaches, but Chris Fetlick says with a modern local twist. Tonight, they're baking their first batch of strawberry ricotta with fruit and cheese from the farmer's market. Um, yeah, I don't think my ancestors were putting ricotta cheese into kolaches, but hopefully they're not turning in their grave. When I ask Chris how he thinks modern-day Czechs would respond? Um, I don't know what they would think of, the, of our kolaches. So, ever the enterprising reporter... Well, I actually brought some with me. I decide to find out from uh, two men. Uh, one of them, his, his family is Czech, and he grew up in Texas. I bring the chorizo cheddar bacon and strawberry ricotta kolaches to the cultural attaché at the embassy of the Czech Republic, whose name, by the way? Robert Řehák, which is very difficult to pronounce. Don't try it even. Robert takes one look at the chorizo kolache and says no. For me, it's very unusual, and I, I don't even want to touch it if I see a sausage in the middle of kolache. For me, kolache is only sweet, uh, very sweet. But when he sees the strawberry ricotta? I would say this one, if it would be a little bit more around, this is the typical collage. So would you like to taste them? Yes, of course, I will taste it. Oh, it's very good. It's very yeah. good, yeah. You know, you see that the taste, it's a little bit different because uh, you adjust the taste to the nation that you are going to introduce the product. But this is uh, quite very, very close and maybe the, even the same like I'm used to from, from my homeland. And that line between the new and the old, the adopted home and the native, that's the line Chris Svetlick and Brian Stanford want to walk. Keeping where the kolache came from in mind and preserving that is important. But the reason the first generation of kolache makers in the U.S. were making very specific flavors was just because it's all they had. You know, we are blessed with such a wide variety of ingredients we could use. And so, you know, I kind of feel like this is what they would be doing. Not limiting themselves to some arcane definition, but just making good kolaches from whatever they can. Except with much thicker accents, probably. <laughs> While we can't offer you a taste of kolaches, we can show you some mouth-watering photos. Find them on metroconnection.org. And if your own Czech grandma never baked up kolaches, Local actor James Konacek wrote and recorded a lovely account of his memories. We have his essay for reading and listening on our website, too. Again, that's metroconnection.org. Our next story takes us to D.C.'s Palisades neighborhood. That's where, right on MacArthur Boulevard, you'll find Fig's Mediterranean Cafe. Back in 2011, Abdul Qadir Niori bought Fig's. Hailing from Eritrea in East Africa, he'd worked his way up the restaurant industry ladder and had been dreaming of running an eatery of his own. But a few months after achieving that dream, Niori suffered a heart attack. And he died. 
Many regulars at Figs expected that would be it for the restaurant. But as Tara Boyle tells us in this story from July 2013, thanks to Niori's younger brother, Saud, that was hardly the case. The first time you walk into Figs Mediterranean Cafe, Saud Niori will greet you like you're his very best customer. Like he hasn't seen you in a while, and he's glad you're back. So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you for having me, especially during the lunch rush. His immediate concern is to figure out what you want for lunch. Got the fatouche salad, the cucumber citrus salad, they have the beet salad over here. Uh, which is your favorite? My favorite is <laughs> the uh, curry chickpeas, which is a little spicy. It's fantastic. A bit later, I dig into some of those curried chickpeas, which are, as advertised, a little spicy. But first, Saud and I grab a table to talk. He wants to tell me about his older brother, Abdu. They first met in 1994, here in the U.S., not in their native Eritrea. When I was born, uh, he had already left. It was uh, a big, a big uh, shock because meeting your brother in a different country and seeing him all grown up, all of a sudden, you, you have to start all over again, you know? Abdu convinced his younger brother, who was then a teenager, to stay in the U.S. and start all over with him here in the D.C. area. And uh, I started going to school and I started working with him at the restaurant that he was a chef at, uh, which was Lebanese Taverna. The brothers spent years in the restaurant industry. By 2011, Abdu wanted to take the next step and buy his own place. He was ready. He was ready to do something different. That August, Abdu brought Saud to Figs and basically said, surprise, I own this. Abdu was now his own boss, and he had big plans for his restaurant. He was then that he's going to need to make a lot of changes because uh, the previous owner, their customer service was not as good. Uh, let's just put it that way. And uh, so it was hard to change, uh, to bring all the people back. And Saud says his brother was making great progress in bringing the neighborhood back to Figs. But then, in January 2012, Abdu died unexpectedly. I remember as it was uh, like yesterday. It was a Tuesday morning. Abdu took his kids to school and then went to the gym. While he was working out, he had a heart attack. And they uh, put him in an ambulance. While he was in an ambulance, that's when he died. At first, Saud says he didn't know what to do. You know, he was like a father, a brother, like a a friend, uh, everything to us. You know, he was the oldest. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what's next. It was just the most unimaginable tragedy, and everyone in the neighborhood presumed that was the end of Figs. Jenny Pearson is a Palisades resident and Figs regular. She arrived at the restaurant the day Abdu died to find Chef Khadija Benwas and another staffer in tears. You know, we all die but we don't generally expect people to die suddenly, and we don't expect people in their 40s to die suddenly. And Hadija kept stressing that day, you know, Abdu seemed fine. Saud didn't have much time to adjust to the shock of his brother's death. He knew almost immediately what he had to do. His family, including his sister-in-law and his brother's five children, needed him to step up and take over the restaurant. I was looking at his kids and his his wife and everybody else, and... uh, I mean, I, they, had, they, had, they don't have anybody else but us. Keeping figs open and thriving means long, long hours at work, and not just for Saud. Khadija makes all the restaurant's food from scratch each day, which means arriving as early as 6 a.m. 
Right now, she's chopping big bunches of cilantro in Fig's tiny kitchen. This is for Harira, and for uh, Lake Msaka, and for the big eggplant with grand turkey. Do you use a lot of cilantro? A lot of cilantro, a lot of fresh garlic, a lot of fresh uh, lemon. Khadija says she's been happy to work for Saud and for his brother before him. I like Saud, I like everybody. He's nice people for me. Saud shares Khadija's devotion to figs, but coming here to this place that meant so much to his big brother is sometimes difficult. Each day, he looks at pictures of Abdu tacked up next to the cash register and updates his brother on the restaurant's progress. I, I just look at him and said, uh, hey, uh, this was the sale last night, you know, we did this much and just try to keep him updated on what's going on, I guess. <laughs> Abdu may be gone, Saud says, but he's determined to keep his brother's dream alive. I'm Tara Boyle. for a break, but when we get back. Wow, look at all the spots that have high poverty, high food insecurity, and tell us how you would feed these kids down in Prince William County. It's a lot different than Fairfax County. Using mapping technology to reach out to the hungry. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. I'm Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. As America celebrates Thanksgiving, we're bringing you a buffet of favorite Metro Connection stories from the past few years, all about traditions, food, and family. This January, a certain set of Americans will be celebrating their 70th birthday, the most senior of the baby boomers. But here's the thing. The 76 million newborns who came on the scene in the years following World War II are now booming in a different way. They're launching new businesses faster than anyone. According to the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation, a nonprofit devoted to entrepreneurship, 55 to 64-year-olds made up only about 15% of new entrepreneurs in 1997. Fast forward to 2015, and they make up more than 25%. And here in the D.C. region, a growing number of these boomers aren't starting up ventures on their own. Hard to get these little crevices in here. They're doing it. This part tends to take me... A little longer because I'm a perfectionist. With so. their kids. Is that a trait you inherited from your mom? Yep. <laughs> oh, yes. We're both perfectionists. Mother-daughter duo Deneen and Ty Heath are the perfectionist partners behind 512 Dessert Boutique and Lounge, headquartered here at Mess Hall, the food business incubator in Brookland, where today Ty is using a speckle tool to spread buttercream on a birthday cake. A birthday cake shaped like a football helmet. Our motto for the business is that our desserts don't just taste great, they are a conversation piece. So typically we like to get that look on people's eyes when they finally see, oh my God, is that a cake? The goal is to turn 512 Dessert Boutique and Lounge into an actual, well, dessert boutique and lounge. Deneen and Ty say the district needs more places to sit down and savor sweets. 
In the meantime, they're catering parties and hosting pop-up events, an ideal match for their talents since Ty just got her bachelor's in baking and pastry arts. I basically learned everything from sugar to chocolate to breads and cakes. And her mom recently went back to school for business administration. My concentration was in event planning and special events. Deneen also does contracts management for the federal government. A 9-to-5 gig the former Washington Redskins cheerleader plans to retire from in the next seven years. How old are you? Right now, I'm getting ready to turn 50 in October. No, you're not. (laughs) So Deneen isn't quite a baby boomer. But when her daughter started baking cakes for family and friends at age 14, Deneen started thinking about a second startup career. That's why she went back to school. As a mother, you know, you naturally want to see her do well and you want it to be a success. And I'm like, what better way for us to make sure it's successful than for me to be involved as much as possible? And that's how boomer Bruce Thomason felt about starting a business with his daughter, Meredith. In this case, another dessert operation, Rare Sweets, a cozy, homey bakery that opened its doors in downtown D.C. late last year. Do you have a favorite item on the menu? I love the macaroons. And then Meredith makes the best peanut brittle. Meredith is in her mid-30s. Bruce describes her as the visionary at Rare Sweets. She's the pastry chef. She's the creative force behind this. He, on the other hand, is more like Deneen Heath, savvy with the nuts and bolts. For years, he's worked in private equity, buying healthcare companies, building them up, and then selling them. When we go into a business, we put together a business plan. How much capital is it going to take? What's the return on the capital going to be? What are the risks and so forth? And that's precisely why Meredith asked him to join forces. I'm a visionary, but I need to be brought back to reality a lot, and he's very good at that. So I said, hey, I want to open a bakery. I can't do this by myself. Do you want to be my partner in crime? In 2009, researchers at the Kauffman Foundation predicted a major entrepreneurship boom in the United States, not in spite of the country's aging workforce, but because of it. And they were spot on, says Bill Novelli, who used to run AARP and now teaches at Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. For one thing, he says, baby boomers have worked a long time. They've got experience and and therefore ideas. But on the darker side of things, he adds, Oftentimes they get forced out of jobs. And so when they get forced out or they pushed out, they're looking for something to do. They want to be productive. Plus, he says, lifetime employment at one company is no longer so commonplace. The way the world works now is that uh, people may change jobs, they may change sectors, they may change careers. Or they may take what was once just a hobby. And they think to themselves, and you know that old cliche, do what you love, they'll try something in that area because they're good at it. Refinishing furniture or buying antiques or whatever it may be. For Rockville resident Marilyn Polin, it was making soup. I used to joke that I should have been in Florida playing mahjong, but that this was much more interesting. <laughs> Marilyn is the recipe crafter and co-founder of the vegan kosher soup company, Supergirl. Do people call you Supermom? Yes, they oh. do. Supermom. And it's that's nice. It's very flattering. <laughs> Supergirl is Marilyn's daughter, Sarah, who was supposed to start the business with a friend till that friend had to drop out. So in 2008, even though Marilyn had already retired from a number of careers... I was a speech-language pathologist, volunteer coordinator at a social service agency, docent at the Corcoran. The home-taught master in the kitchen stepped in. And I I think she just had no idea what she was getting into. No woman should ask of her mother what I asked of mine. Did you know what you were getting into? Absolutely not. I I really, in a good way, lost a year of my life. (laughs) 
A lot of peeling, chopping, cooking, and tasting went into launching Supergirl as an online ordering business. It was a privilege to cut my nails. I was so busy, really. Before long, though, they opened this cafe in Tacoma Park, another in downtown Washington, and now they have a staff of 23. And it's great because she's now sane again, and she has two beautiful granddaughters, my nieces, and can spend time with them. But she's still very involved in the back end, in more of an advisory role, I guess. I listen. I I listen a lot when things... (laughs) Yeah, when she's at the end of her rope, yeah. who are you going to call? Your mother, you know? <laughs> and Marilyn sees her role as advisor, business partner, and yes, mom, as a privilege. Now, taking on such a role might not be for everyone. You might not have the capital. You might still enjoy your current job. Or after a lifetime of hard work, you might just want to slow down. But if you have the opportunity to try something new, says Supermom, why not at least try a little taste? If it comes your way or you have to find it, do it. It makes life interesting and exciting and go for it. You never know what'll happen. In fact, it just might be the recipe for sweet success. Our next story is about ending a chapter in one's life and starting a new one. Chef Steve Batt fed some of Washington's neediest residents for more than a decade at the nonprofit Miriam's Kitchen. With his focus on fresh local ingredients, he changed how people think about cooking for the homeless. After 14 years, Batt decided to hang up his apron. Lauren Landau brought us his story in July of this year. It's going on 7 a.m., and the streets of D.C. are still pretty quiet. A jogger here, a taxi there. If you want to see heavier traffic, swing by Miriam's Kitchen. Good morning. morning. Welcome to Miriam's Kitchen. For breakfast today, we have waffles with fresh blueberries and whipped cream, home fries or grits, eggs half with a spoon. You will never get a meal anywhere else like this in the District of Columbia. Sylvia Randolph has been a familiar face at Miriam's Kitchen for about two and a half years. She says not only are the full-course meals second to none, they're also eclectic. Here at Miriam's Kitchen, Randolph has eaten everything from crepes to Cornish hens. And she's even learned to like their vegetarian options. If you come to Miriam's Kitchen, you will be introduced to every style of green you can think of. Fresh produce like this hasn't always been on the menu. Volunteer Elaine Feister remembers when most of the food came in cans. I remember a lot of spaghetti. We used to do powdered milk. That was a task to, you know, somebody, a volunteer had to reconstitute the milk. That all changed when this guy came on board. Okay, 10 minutes, everybody, 10 minutes. Chef Steve Batt joined the team at Miriam's Kitchen 14 years ago. He had eight years in the restaurant biz under his belt and a master's in nonprofit management. What I wanted to do was try to transition out of the restaurants and use my skills for a bigger impact, for to do better good. He volunteered a few times and saw the perfect opportunity in Miriam's Kitchen. It was already a good organization. I mean, it was well known, it was doing good work, but it was more of a mom and pop kind of place with volunteers who had a great heart coming together and just playing with what what they had at that time. There was some pushback when he said he wanted to swap canned fruit and veggies out for fresh ones. I remember when I interviewed with the board of directors, I said, you know what, I want to blow up the kitchen and rebuild it into a restaurant-style kitchen. 
and half the board was like, whoa, you know, things are going pretty well, you know, we're happy, we're not hiring you to, you know, overhaul everything. And I'm like, just wait, just see. So they watched as Bat started forging relationships with Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, Costco, Cisco, and U.S. Foods. Donations also came straight from the source. Miriam's Kitchen has connections to hunters, fishermen, and farmers markets. Once you go to a market, you're talking to the farmers and you talk about what you do, and they're like, wow, I throw out so many tomatoes every week. Do you want to come and get them? And I'm like, yeah. Teams of volunteers collect the donations from their local markets and bring them back to the kitchen, where they get to see the food come full circle. So they get excited and they can't wait to go again back to the market and get more ingredients. And when they go back to the farmers, they go, oh, you know what we used your tomatoes for? We made a great sauce and the clients loved it and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden the farmer's like, oh, this week I have eggplant, I have so much eggplant. As for those early dissenters who are nervous about messing with a good thing, Bat says they changed their tune once they saw an increase in quality, but not in spending. Through donations and conscious shopping, costs actually dropped. I started, it was around $1.50 per meal. We dropped it down to a dollar pretty quickly, and now we're down to basically 25 cents to 50 cents a head um, for a breakfast meal, and sometimes zero cost at dinner. He's passing the spatula to Emily Hagel, who's the director of kitchen operations. Like Bat, Hagel has a professional culinary background, but she says she always hoped she'd be able to apply her culinary skills to people who are really hungry. I think everyone deserves a great meal. And that's kind of the philosophy that I have here at Miriam's. Whether it be breakfast or dinner, I want to prepare a five or six-item meal from scratch that a paying customer in a restaurant would want to pay for. Meanwhile, Bat is going into business. He says he'll still be making an impact by advising others on how to make socially responsible investments. He's looking forward to spending more time with his family and sleeping in. You know, I have two alarm clocks set for 4.30, and I think I might symbolically, you know, sledgehammer them. I'm Lauren Landau. out in the D.C. area, one in five kids has limited access to nutritious meals. They're among the half a million people at risk of going hungry in our region. But it's often difficult to find these individuals and provide the help they need. That's why the Capital Area Food Bank has turned to technology to locate pockets of food insecurity. This past July, Lauren Ober brought us the story of one new program, the Kids Food Bus If you're driving on Jefferson Davis Highway in Woodbridge, it's easy to miss the Marumsco Mobile Home Park. First, there's no signage or street address out front. Second, it's basically hidden in a gully behind an auto zone and a taco joint on an extremely busy road. Because of its location, the kids who live at Marumsco are basically trapped in the park during the summer. Most are children of Latino immigrants and many live in poverty. They need the services that the food bank provides, but they can't get to them. This is a remote location for them. They can't cross the main street, and they have barriers that prevent them from going to the mobile sites. That's Amanda Brundage, who coordinates the mobile meals program for the food bank. Because Marumsco is tucked away out of view, it would have been hard for the food bank folks to find the kids. 
But using new mapping technology called the hunger heat map, the food bank has been able to locate clusters of unmet food needs in the region and deploy services like the kids' food bus, to address those needs. It showed locations where the hunger was most prevalent, where there was more hunger. And from there, we were able to find four locations, two being the mobile homes. When you look at the hunger heat map on a computer, it's immediately apparent where the unaddressed need is. Big red patches cover places like Dale City and Gaithersburg, indicating hungry people who aren't getting served. For the food bank's executive director, Nancy Roman, that visibility makes all the difference. People really identify with maps. There's this huge emotional human connection to a map that I think allows us to really connect people to what's happening. It's funny, sometimes you can know these things, but when you see them, they feel more immediate. The hunger heat map is unique to the Capital Area Food Bank. The concept is pretty simple. The map shows layers of metrics, like how much food is being distributed and where the need is greatest. Together, all those layers tell the story of hunger in our region. Michael Hollister designed the technology for the food bank. He says being able to see where the gaps in service are has been critical. We're able to see not only where the need is, but also what our impact is in the community. And we're able to assess after our impact, what is there left to do? In the year or so that the heat map has been around, the food bank has used it to determine where to locate services and to design new programs. Cecilia Vergaretti, the food bank's Northern Virginia director, says that's how her staff came up with the kids' food bus. We looked at the hunger heat map and we said, wow, look at all the spots that have high poverty, high food insecurity. And we challenged them and we said, Tell us how you would feed these kids down in Prince William County. It's a lot different than Fairfax County. Every weekday, the bus serves 200 kids, give or take, at four locations, including the Marumsco Mobile Home Park. On this day, the big white bus painted with smiling fruits and vegetables rolls up as kids play soccer in the park's only green space. They're waiting for their free bagged lunch, which they get every weekday in the summer. One of the kids, Julian Ambries, stops playing long enough to tell me what's in his bagged lunch. Sandwiches, juice, milk, and fruits. And how is the lunch? It's actually pretty good. Julian lives in one of the trailer homes with his parents and three siblings. His dad, a Mexican immigrant, works construction. His mom stays at home to watch the kids. Julian says the food bus has been a welcome sight during the summer. There's a lot of people that can't afford food. So that really helps us. And with that, he takes a bite of his apple from his bagged lunch, chugs some milk, and heads back to the makeshift soccer field. Were it not for the food bus and the tech that sent it off into the world, Julian's lunch today likely wouldn't have been nearly this healthy or this cheap. I'm Lauren Ober. Want to see the hunger heat map yourself? You can find a link on our website, metroconnection.org. a minute. I hear so many kids say, oh, there's nothing to do around here. I can't wait to grow up and move out of here. And I just look at this and I say, this playground? You want to leave this? Dredging for oysters in the playground known as the Chesapeake Bay. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5.
Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. This Thanksgiving week, we're nibbling around the Metro Connection archives, bringing you some favorite stories about food, family, and traditions. We'll kick off this part of the show on the Chesapeake Bay, near the mouth of the Patuxent River. Oh, look what I found. That's where, last May, I met Rachel Dean. You want me to kiss him? You want me to kiss him? (laughs) Our story opens with Dean kneeling beside a plastic baby pool as she shows a cluster of kids a whole mess of marine life, like this horseshoe crab. Rachel found the 12-legged arthropod in the Patuxent River, near the Calvert Marine Museum in Solomons, Maryland. So what are some of the critters we have over in this baby pool? We have oysters. We dredged those up yesterday afternoon. And the periwinkles we got out of the marsh this morning, the snails, and we have some razor clams there. It's getting on dinner time, and the Calvert County native has spent all day on the dock entertaining visitors as part of the museum's grand reopening festival, celebrating the facility's $2 million renovation. I don't know which is more tired, me or the animals. But here's the thing. Even after the crowds head home, Rachel Dean has a bit more entertaining to do on her 40-foot boat, the rough water. I'm going to slip the boat out of the boat basin. We'll go out onto the Patuxent River and I can show you how we work the dredge. And if it looks like we can get away with it, I'll drop the patent tongs, show you how those work too. See, in addition to teaching young people, and the mother of two actually teaches professionally, high school English, Captain Rachel Dean also works on and around the Chesapeake Bay as a waterman. What made you want to do this? A bucket and a crab net when I was little, I guess? As a school teacher, I hear so many kids say, oh, there's nothing to do around here. I can't wait to grow up and move out of here. And I just say, this playground? You want to leave this? And I went to college, and and I have a master's now, but I'm always going to come back to it. You hear the old-timers say, once it's in your blood, it's in your blood. For my husband and I, we're both first generation, so it must have gotten injected somewhere because it wasn't inherited. Rachel and her husband, Simon, supply rockfish, crabs, and oysters to local businesses through their company, Patuxent River Seafood. They also run Solomon's Island Heritage Tours, part of the Waterman Heritage Tours program. The Chesapeake Conservancy, Coastal Heritage Alliance, Maryland Watermen's Association, and the Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum have trained more than 100 watermen to show off their way of life to tourists, from setting up crab pots. I'm going to take a minute to call in my scientific collection permit so they know we're out here. To dredging for oysters. I'm sampling oysters outside of season, so I work with the state to get a scientific collection permit so that I can do demonstrations. On today's private tour, after Rachel calls in her permit. Hi, um, my name is Rachel Dean. I just called up to Annapolis. I was trying to call in my scientific collection permit, but they transferred me to you. I'm going to be in the lower Patuxent River, Calvert County. She shows me how she harvests oysters with her boat's jaw-like, claw-like patent tongs. And the power dredge, a heavy chain bag attached to a long rope. You can feel it. You feel the rope. You can feel it hitting the oysters on the bottom. Feel her vibrating. She then dumps the oysters with a crash onto a metal culling board. That is some pretty oysters right there. Some real big oysters. They have a lot of growing bills on them. Looks real good for next year. If we can keep them alive, we can keep them happy, we'll have a good year and many years after that too. The way Captain Rachel Dean sees it, she and her fellow watermen want nothing more than to keep bay species happy. But she worries those of us who aren't on the water every day might not get that. The waterman's way of life is something that people don't know much about. When you don't know much about something, you kind of start to speculate or you, you go on things that you hear. 
So there's a lot of things that people really don't know about us that if I can bring them out here on the boat and I can show them, then maybe we can gain their support. They'll start to buy the fresh local seafood. So much of our seafood comes from out of the state and really out of the country. Rachel says her tours often highlight the challenges watermen face, like encroaching development and increasing sedimentation in the bay. Oysters need a hard surface to be able to grow. So we're struggling with the populations of the oysters because these oysters aren't finding that clean substrate to set on. So we have a lot of sediment. And you hear a lot of people say, oh, you know, we shouldn't be harvesting oysters. We're at 1% of historic populations. But it really isn't the harvesters compared to, you know, you look around and you see all these houses and, and you know what's happening to our waterways. In fact, she says, if anybody is truly invested in where these populations are going, it's a waterman. Or wait, now that I think about it, in Rachel Dean's case, wouldn't it be water woman? I have a lot of people that, you know, say, oh, sorry, water woman, and I don't want that distinction. Are you sort of one of a rare breed, or are there a lot of women like you? We have one in the area that got her captain's license after uh, just completing the heritage training program. There's a couple of lady charter boat captains in the area, too. There's a young lady, I believe she's out of Anne Arundel County. She works her own boat full-time. She like I did, was out here pregnant, so. How long were you working when you were pregnant? I charter fished until I was about six months pregnant, and actually she's part of the crew now. She asked Daddy for a cruise ship for Christmas, so she got it. Not that all watermen are quick to accept a woman working on the water. Captain Rachel Dean loves talking about the superstitions held by more old-school watermen, like how you shouldn't paint your boat's bottom blue, how you shouldn't let dogs on your boat, or bananas. And can you believe they think a woman on a boat is bad luck? Yeah, I've heard that one too. I'm okay with it, though. (laughs) It's never really bothered me much. Now, from Southern Maryland, we head up to Howard County to meet a woman with a deep connection not so much to the water, but to the land. The Clark family has been raising cattle and growing wheat in Ellicott City since 1797. 27-year-old Nora Crist grew up on the family farm, but she says her mother, Martha Clark, encouraged her and her brother to make their own choices. Go work somewhere else. Go live somewhere else. Go experience something else. I don't want you to grow up on this farm, stay on this farm, work and live on this farm. I want you to see more. Nora listened to her mother, but she didn't exactly obey. Emily Berman first brought us her story in March. Nora Christ lives in the house she grew up in. It's a three-bedroom farmhouse nestled in the woods. And other than her dog, Ella, she's got it all to herself. It's huge. It's way too big for me. (laughs) Nora leads the way to the basement, where grow lights hang low over trays of sprouting peppers, eggplant, tomatoes, kohlrabi, and more. In, you know, a couple weeks, all of these will have green things coming out of them, and it'll just feel really alive in here, which is nice (laughs) and exciting. Farming is having a bit of a moment right now. A lot of people Nora's age would say it's a cool job. But having grown up on a farm, she knew better than to think farming meant frolicking with animals in a meadow. It's really, really hard work. And originally, she didn't want to do it. She started college with a major in equine studies to ride and raise horses, but she returned to the farm every summer to help her grandfather, James Clark Jr., run the produce stand. My grandfather taught me how to 
count. He taught me how to uh, make change. And we were never allowed to use a calculator or write it down. We had to do it in our head. And though she'd always thought of herself as shy, by watching her grandfather interact with the customers, she learned to open up. So I was kind of, um, you know, repeating things they did and being outgoing and friendly and joking and just making that person feel comfortable. And they, they maybe they'll buy a little more. She was her best self on the farm and also felt a great responsibility to care for the property. Her grandfather created one family commandment, never sell the land. He's buried on the farm, and that credo is engraved on his headstone. We have the never sell the land etched in stone here to a constant reminder, (laughs) uh, in a good way, to value this land and this farm and um, appreciate it. From Nora's basement, we head outside. Down the hill is where she keeps the pigs, and up a ways, where we're headed, that's where the chickens and goats live. These are my laying hens, and uh, that's their eggmobile. That's where they sleep and lay eggs. Two furry dogs run over to say hi. These are my guard dog puppies. Hi, babies! Inside a small barn, there's a herd of goats. These ones were both born a week ago. These goats will eventually be sold for meat, but for now, they're just pets. In the five years since Nora moved back here, the farm has started selling more products, including grass-fed beef. Then, you know, customers started asking for eggs, and I said, hmm, well, maybe I'll get some chickens for myself and see how it goes. And the eggs were delicious. And what goes with eggs? Bacon. So now i got to have pigs. The animal farming is Nora's business, but she sells the meat out of a store at her mom Martha's petting farm. We head over to find Martha painting the store's floor. I think I've painted every building uh, on this farm at least once or twice. All the snow this winter made it difficult to prepare for the farm's opening on April 1st. And if you've been to the petting farm, you probably remember the colorful artifacts from the Enchanted Forest. That was a Disney-esque theme park that opened in 1955 in Ellicott City. It closed years ago, but parents still get a kick out of seeing the sculptures when they bring their kids to the farm. Before all the visitors get here, there's a lot of work to do. We have to have our pond tour set up and our garden tour set up, get our our plants planted in our garden, make sure all the tractors and wagons are uh, serviceable. There are school tours planned and tons of birthday parties lined up, as many as 12 a day in the summertime. Yeah, we work hard and we work a lot of hours and it's physically and emotionally demanding, but all of those things make it fun. Farm life is quiet, definitely not the choice of most millennials who flock to major cities. Nora says she plans to carry on the family tradition and push the business to new heights. I think the petting farm will get more popular. I'd like to have a a steady supply of meat and vegetables for our customers and to just really build that community of, of shopping straight from the farm. Sounds good. She's got me worn out. (laughs) As the sixth and seventh generation of Clark farmers, they're proud the farm's thriving and that they're the ones who get to take care of it. I'm Emily Berman. You can see photos of Nora Christ's newborn goats on our website, metroconnection.org. And now a look at another business steeped in tradition. Martin Ostermule visited Kent Island in December and brought us this story. Here's a quick quiz. Name one thing that connects Carlos Santana to Maryland's eastern shore. I'll give you a few seconds to think about it. 
powerful? Many people would be. But the very thing that makes Santana who he is, that rich, singing guitar tone, is intimately tied to a nondescript building on Kent Island, on the eastern side of the Bay Bridge. This is the factory and headquarters for Paul Reed Smith Guitars, which Santana has played exclusively since 1980. Carlos had me build him about five or six guitars in the beginning. And he finally, at the end of the last one, the double neck at that time, said, okay, you're a guitar maker. He wasn't going to give me his respect. He made me earn it, which I thought was beautiful. That's Paul Reed Smith, the guitar maker whose name graces the instruments he's been making for 30 years. It's a passion that started when he was growing up in the suburbs around D.C. and made its way closer to the Bay as he got better at what he did. I, I set my brother's bedroom up in my house in Bowie making guitars over a summer. And when I moved to college, started a bunch of bands and started making a guitar in the art department. And you just couldn't keep me away from it, you know. And then when I quit college after a year and a half being a math major, I moved to Annapolis and started a little garret shop making guitars. It's always been that. That little garret shop has grown into a company of 250 employees. They make 1,100 guitars every month and do $42 million worth of sales a year. Though PRS is dwarfed in size by brands like Gibson and Fender, its guitars are considered some of the best in the business. Maple tops, mahogany back, mahogany neck, okay. rosewood fretboard. That's kind of the tried and true, uh, you know, tone woods for a, a set neck electric guitar. In December, I visited the PRS factory in Stevensville. The largest room is a humidity-controlled wood shop of sorts. Large machines take blocks of maple, mahogany, and other woods and shape them into guitar bodies, which are then sanded down and sanded again and again until they're smooth to the touch. Once the guitars come off the CNC machine, uh, we have the basic outline, basic shape, but you can see it's still pretty rough. A lot of cutter marks, a lot of scratches. Uh, so we give it to these guys. They start with 80 grit sandpaper, and they remove all the heavy scratches. Then they go down to 150 grit, 220 grit, and then 320 grit. After the guitar bodies are done, they're fitted with necks, painted, and mounted with electronics. Employees string the guitars and often play them to see that everything's as it should be. It's both quality control and a perk of the job. The majority of the factory's employees are musicians, after all. All told, it takes 22 hours to turn pieces of wood into a guitar that's ready to be packaged and sold. But even before that happens, there's one last step. Here's Smith again. Every Friday morning, we open six cases out of shipping with all the managers and go through them with a fine-tooth comb. Every single manager from every department goes through all the guitars. We do the same thing that you're going to do if you buy the guitar. We have the same experience. Smith says the company's goal has always been to make guitars that blend the best traditions of the craft while constantly embracing new techniques and technology. The golden age of making guitars was between 1950 and 1966, something like that. I was in diapers in 1958, so in the middle of it, you know, I wasn't invited to that party. For us, this is our time. So you go into a lot of music stores now, it's, it's huge numbers of Chinese imitations of what was cool when I was a kid, and we're not trying to do that. We're trying to make as good an instrument as we possibly can with the knowledge base that we have. Plenty of guitarists seem to think he succeeded, Carlos Santana included. Looking back on those 30 years, Smith says he's still surprised by how it all played out. It's been an extraordinary run. I could have not called most of it that happened. Uh, in the beginning, it was, well, we'll give the kid a chance, you know, and then it became a real company, and then it became competitive, and then it came uh, that we were leading the industry in quality in some ways, and then they got re-competitive back, and things have changed a lot in good ways and bad ways, it's moved. Just nothing stays the same. Mm -hmm. 
And I would say, yeah, I'm surprised we're here and I'm glad we're here. And I think everybody in the building thinks it's a good thing we're still here. One thing will stay the same, though. Smith says he's not going anywhere anytime soon. I'm Martin Ostermule. Want to check out the factory where those guitars are made? Martin took all kinds of photos, and you can find them on our website, metroconnection.org. Before we say goodbye today, we'll turn the microphone to you to read from your emails and messages about recent editions of Metro Connection. We recently reported on a planned bike lane in D.C.'s Shaw neighborhood, a bike lane that's sparked heated debate about gentrification, displacement, and the Department of Transportation's community engagement, or lack thereof. Andrew Rowe tweeted us to say, The wish for meaningful engagement before decisions has to be the most universal complaint in D.C., and it's usually legit. And our story about the elite Sidwell Friends School purchasing the Washington home and displacing the mostly low-income seniors who live there prompted this response from listener Crystal Stevens. The actual residents of the Washington home are being treated like chessmen who can be moved to a different square. But with elderly people, a change of residence can be devastating. There needs to be a better way to handle this property transaction. And last week, we interviewed Warren Crutchfield, the first African-American varsity coach in Montgomery County. In the story, he mentioned having to teach square dancing in phys ed class, a skill he knew nothing about. We heard from a number of Crutchfield's former students, including George Carroll, who wrote, I was one of those elementary school students that Mr. Crutchfield taught to square dance at Twinbrook Elementary School. Twenty years ago, I met my future wife at a dance, so I guess I put those dancing skills to good use. Thank you, Mr. Crutchfield. Do you have a comment on a story you've heard on the show? Let us know. Email us at metro at wamu.org. Find us on Facebook or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. that's Metro Connection for this week. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest and Jenning Record Company. We list all of our music at metroconnection.org, where you can link to our weekly podcast and to our Twitter and Facebook pages so we can stay in touch with you all week long. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News. <laughs>